Today we're going to be reading together from Luke chapter 5, verse 33, right through to 6, verse 16. So if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it up. If you're at home uh, and you've got a Bible but not right with you at the laptop, maybe go grab it. Uh, If you don't have one, don't worry too much. The words will come up on the screen as we go. Now, before we get into the verses that we're going to read today, we need to very quickly remind ourselves of what's gone before because the the context for these verses is really critical. Uh, And so if you were with us last week, if not, then you can catch up quickly now. We've just read in chapter 5, Uh, about Jesus calling a man named Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. Uh, And we talked briefly last week about how utterly scandalous that would have been. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low morally uh, in society. Um, (laughs) They were not considered good people. Uh, And Jesus approaches this man who the Jews, the religious elite would have looked at and and shunned and and broadly in society he would have been shunned too and Jesus approaches this man and says come and follow me and Levi comes and follows him and then we found uh, this record of Jesus at a feast with Levi uh, that Levi had put on in his honour and we read that they were reclining at the table with other tax collectors. It wasn't just Levi. It wasn't just a one of them. There's a whole load of them there. And other sinners, it tells us. Uh, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders got quite upset about this. And they said to Jesus, you know, what are you doing? Or they said to Jesus' disciples, like, what are you doing here? Eating with these people. And the response they received from Jesus was, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was saying he'd come for those who were far off, for those who knew their need of forgiveness, who knew their need of a saviour. The self-righteous, the ones who think that they're okay on their own merit, actually will in their pride miss out when it comes to Jesus. But those who acknowledge their need will find in him the favour of the Lord. And that's kind of where we finished up last week. And it's in that context and with that kind of note resounding in our ears that we jump in today at 5 33, because right into the midst of that feast that they were at, right into the context of the religious leader saying, why are you here associating with these sinners? And Jesus saying, these are the very people I've come for, those who know that they are in need of forgiveness. We then go on to read what happens next. So let's read from, verse, uh, from chapter 5, verse 33. And the way we're going to do this today is we'll read a little bit, pause, talk about it, read a bit more, pause, and so on and so forth. So 5 verse 33, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. This question 
comes to Jesus in the midst of this party, surrounded by sinners. What's going on? They're confused. And they're looking for a way to tra- trip Jesus up. They say, look, John's followers fast, as, f- as fast, why don't yours? Now, John was the last of the prophets who declared that the Messiah, Jesus, was going to come. And John, as he did that, lived out in the wilderness and he shunned worldly comforts and he preached a message that called for mourning and called for repentance, mourning the seriousness of sin. And and that mourning would have included fasting as a sign of sorrow for their sin. John's followers would have taken this teaching on. And also fasting in those days was common. There were many, many examples as we look through the Bible of fasting and of fasting being entirely appropriate as a course of action. Either fasting in mourning over great tragedies or fasting in mourning over the realisation of the serious effects of sin, but also fasting as a sign of dissatisfaction with the present state of things, a a holy dissatisfaction and longing for something yet to come. There were those who, who fasted in anticipation of the coming Messiah, of being not content with things how they were, but in longing for the Messiah to come. We read right at the beginning of Luke's gospel together about Anna, a prophetess, who had been fasting in anticipation of the coming Messiah. So fasting was a good thing for many. But (laughs) fasting was also used by some at the time as a way of trying to justify themselves or a way of trying to earn God's favor. In fact, In Jesus' day, fasting was commanded twice a week by the Pharisees. So they instructed people that they should fast twice a week. And some viewed it as a way of denying their flesh and commending themselves in that to God for his attention or favor. But it was also, for lots of people, sadly, mixed with a desire to appear the most holy. And so it became something of a show for people. And there were those who would whiten their faces to make themselves look more kind of sullen and gaunt and hungry. The idea was almost that the the more sad and serious you looked, then the more holy and religious and devout you must be. (laughs) Everyone would know you were fasting because you looked so ill. Like, you must really be taking this fast seriously. You look so drawn and pale. And that must mean that you're a really good person. (laughs) This was essentially a kind of first century virtue signalling, I guess, It was like a way of trying to point out to everyone without having to open your mouth and say it, what a good person you were. And so they found it utterly outrageous and bewildering that Jesus and his followers weren't fasting. (laughs) 
In fact, here they were feasting with tax collectors and sinners instead. So how does Jesus respond to this accusation or this questioning? We read from verse 34, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Do you remember we said that some fasted in in this kind of holy dissatisfaction of things as they were and a longing for the Messiah to come? And Jesus here says, essentially fasting in expectation of the coming Messiah is no longer necessary because Jesus was here with his disciples. And he refers to himself as the bridegroom. They will fast again. (laughs) There will be a day when they fast again as they long in holy expectation for his return. And we're in those days now. But at this point, when they were with him feasting, he says, why would they fast now? I'm here with them. It's right, it's appropriate that they would feast and celebrate and rejoice. And also, there is, there's no need to put on a show and pretend to appear holy, which is what some people were doing through their fasting. It was a show for the eyes of others, These people with Jesus knew that that was not necessary. For for Jesus had come that sinners might be cleansed, that captives might be freed, and his righteousness freely given as though it were their own. People receive the favour of the Lord. That's cause to celebrate, isn't it? And so they did. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone just ignored their sin. And that there was no mourning at the realisation of the seriousness of their sin. Remember we read at the start of chapter 5 as Jesus called his first followers and Simon Peter on the boat saw Jesus for who he was and fell at his knees and cried out, Go away from me! I'm a sinful man. He had this kind of like, oh my goodness, sudden awareness of his sinfulness compared with the holiness of Jesus. So there is a, an awareness, but also the answer to their sins isn't fasting. It's forgiveness found in Jesus. And so they celebrate and they feast together. By asking this question about fasting, the religious leaders have opened the door now (laughs) for a broader discussion and a broader subject about how people are made right with God. And Jesus isn't going to let it go. And so we're going to read on what he says. He gives two illustrations now to, to drive home his point. We read from verse 36 together. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into new 
wineskins or fresh wineskins. He says, guys, you don't go out and buy a new shirt, rip a bit off it, and use it to patch your old and broken one. You think, no, that feels quite obvious. I've never done that. I think that would be a strange thing to do. I'm sure you'd agree. It's like you'll ruin the new one, and besides, the cloth isn't going to match the old faded and torn one. Why would you do it? But what does Jesus mean? It's quite an odd picture, isn't it? What's he talking about? Where he's using this as an illustration to say that the Judaism of the Pharisees, the rules and regulations that they were imposing on people and saying these are the things you need to do to be right before God, was like an old garment. And there was no way that you could just bolt the gospel of Jesus or the good news that Jesus had come to bring onto this old way of thinking. He hadn't come to just patch up the old covenant, but instead to bring about a whole new one. He hadn't come to refine Judaism, but to birth a new understanding of how we come to God. The Pharisees thought it was about being born into the right group of people and about keeping rules in order to earn God's favour. But the new garment that Jesus brought, that this picture is about, was a, a garment of righteousness, not won by our ethnicity or moral performance, but instead a garment of righteousness given freely to us by Jesus. And you don't put new wine, Jesus goes on to say, into old wineskins. Now, we're going to unpack it and what he means by that in a moment. But just as a very quick aside, I, I feel compelled to say, this is one of the most misused passages of Scripture you're ever likely to come across. If you've been around church any number of years, you've probably heard people use this passage about new wine and new wineskins to justify all kinds of things. Uh, people think about it like this, you know, want to launch a new ministry in church or stop something old you don't want anymore? New, new wine, new wineskins. This, this new thing requires a new wineskin, so we need to do a new thing. Or you, know, you come up with some new way of structuring church or some niche theological position that you think somehow the last 2,000 years of Christians have somehow mistakenly overlooked, regardless of how biblical or unbiblical it is, wineskins. That's the answer. Now, I've, honestly, I've heard people justify all kinds of things by using this passage. And sometimes, I think perhaps there's a principle that can be used in some situations, but we must always, always be very wary of taking Scripture out of context and using it to support our point. You take words like that without their context, without understanding what they meant when Jesus spoke them, and just go, oh, that, that sounds good, like I could use that as a, a kind of good support for my new initiative. Guys, we mustn't ever do that. We must be so careful not to take Scripture out of context and simply use it to say what we want it to say, to support our point. We must seek to understand it, 
to read it and use it in context. So with that said, what does it mean? Well, Jesus is just building on the garment illustration he's just used. He's, it's, it's a reinforcement of the same thing. He's saying, Jesus is saying that the old wineskin of works-based religion, of believing that you can earn God's favor by being good enough, cannot contain the good news of the gospel of grace. If you try and combine the two, it just doesn't work. The old skin will burst and the wine will be lost. You can't mix and match. Either you try to justify yourself before God by your works on your own merit and you'll die trying, or you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a savior and you humbly accept Christ as your only hope. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. You either go for legalism and you end up in condemnation or you accept that you can't do it. You need one who will do it on your behalf, Christ Jesus. Can't have Jesus and maintain the old wineskin of works. And Jesus concludes that section then with, with a slightly odd phrase because he goes on to say, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. What Jesus is saying here, that people who drink the old wine of self-righteousness don't even want to try the new wine of the gospel of Jesus. Why? You may kind of hear that and you think, like, why on earth would you not? Well, it's because the desire to justify ourselves through our rule-keeping and religious endeavors is strong. I don't know if you know that about yourself, but it is. (laughs) You want to believe that you are good enough, that on your merit you can stand and be a good person, and God will look at you and approve of you as a good person person that you can live up to it we're proud by nature we want to achieve it for ourselves and we believe we can but the gospel of Jesus declares that cannot be the case we bring really nothing to the table except our sin and sickness and Christ the physician of our souls makes us well we need him Jesus was demonstrating it and he was saying it and the Pharisees, like people who've tasted old wine and don't even want to try the new, struggled to accept it. They didn't accept it. And people ever since have struggled with it because when we have a taste for the old wine of legalism, of self-righteousness, then we're reluctant to give it up to try the new wine of Jesus. We want to think that God shows us favor because we've earned it, because we deserve it. <laughs> Don't we, if we're honest? Maybe it's just me. But I, I like to think that God shows me favor because of me, because I'm special, <laughs> and I've done something to deserve it. But that isn't 
the truth of the gospel. The gospel resoundingly declares that that is not so. And actually, at that news, we should breathe a huge sigh of relief. Because if we were able to grasp, truly able to grasp, the depth and seriousness of our sin, compared to the utter, spotless holiness of God, if we were able to grasp those two things in their fullness, then we would realise that no amount of do-gooding or rule-keeping will ever be anywhere near enough. This text, as we read it, should scream out to you, and I hope it does, stop trying to earn your way into God's favour. You can't do it. You won't do it. But the good news is, is that we can rest in what Christ has already done. And in that vein, Luke continues to show us how Jesus continued to teach and demonstrate that truth. And he gives us two accounts of Jesus upsetting some more religious leaders who, who didn't want to accept the new wine and the new wineskin, who, who didn't want to accept the new garment. Two stories where Pharisees accused Jesus and his followers of working on the Sabbath, of breaking the rules one about food and another about healing, but both of them about getting to the heart of God's holy law. We read from the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some ears of corn, rubbing them in their hands. But some Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Now this is slightly odd if we don't understand the laws and customs and history, so we're going to quickly, as we go through. First up, let's be very clear. The disciples were not stealing food in this context. There was provision in the law for you to walk through your neighbor's field and have a handful of corn. That was okay. That was perfectly permissible. There was no stealing going on. So that's not the issue here. But what they were doing was breaking one of the very many onerous Sabbath rules about work if you gave a very, very tight reading of them. And I mean a very tight <laughs> reading of them. Picking grain was, by the Pharisees in this context, being construed as harvesting. They said, you have picked some grains in your hands. That's harvesting, and harvesting's not allowed on the Sabbath. Rubbing the grain in their hands was viewed by the Pharisees as threshing. Threshing the wheat when they rubbed it in their hands to get rid of the husks. And threshing is not allowed on the Sabbath. And when they ate that which they had harvested and threshed, then 
they had prepared food on the Sabbath, which was also forbidden. Now, what they hadn't done in real terms was actually break God's Sabbath law, but what they had done is break the Pharisees' very strict application of the law. And Jesus uses as an example from the Old Testament of David and his mighty men who ate something they shouldn't do on the Sabbath. They ate the bread of the presence. Now, very quickly, the bread of the presence was 12 loaves of unleavened bread that were placed in the temple, right in the inner bit of the temple, in the presence of God. And these 12 loaves were symbolic. They they served as a special reminder to God's people of God as their source of strength and nourishment and provision of God as the one who would meet their needs on who they could depend for everything. That, that was the purpose of these loaves. Uh, and every week, every seven days on the Sabbath, the loaves were replaced, I guess, because they'd go stale. So the old ones were taken and replaced with new ones. And the old ones were to be eaten only and very strictly only by the priests because they were consecrated these This bread had been set apart for this holy purpose of reminding God's people of his provision for them. But David, King David, on the run from his enemy, hungry, hungry enough that he and his men might perish, went into the temple at a place called Nob and got the bread from the priest who was on duty there and took it and ate it. Why? So that they might not perish. Okay, they were on the run, exhausted, on the brink of death, and to preserve their life, they went to the temple and they ate this bread. Now, in Mark's gospel account of this same occasion where the Pharisees confront Jesus and his men about picking grain. Mark says part of Jesus's response was this phrase that Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. And that's important for our understanding of what's going on here and why Jesus uses this illustration. He says the Sabbath It was a day of rest given by God so that people would rest from their work one day a week. It was actually given for people's good, for their benefit. It was to to protect us from overwork. At least in part, the point of the Sabbath was resting and trusting in God, trusting in him to work on our behalf when we are resting, trusting him to provide when we're not using our hands to try and provide for ourselves. God knows that we need rest. If you didn't know that about yourself, I want to tell you now, you do need rest. God knows that, but he also knows that we need unhitching from self reliance from believing that we can do it all we need reminding of our dependence on him to provide and we need reminding of it regularly and so God said every week once a week you should stop working 
and rest and enjoy me. In an agricultural society, when maybe the one good day of the week, weather-wise, for harvesting was perhaps the Sabbath, actually resting on the Sabbath was a real mark of trusting God to provide. Trusting God for the harvest, trusting God to sustain you rather than just trusting in the work of your own hands. In the Sabbath, God gave a whole day where people were to actively remember him and delight in his provision and his goodness. To know him, meet with him, and be refreshed by him. He gave the Sabbath for rest. He gave the Sabbath as a reminder of our dependence on him, a day to enjoy him without the encumbrance and distraction of work. Because he knows we need it. It's good for you. And it's good for those around you. Maybe you haven't got there yet in your thinking, but trust me, you're a better friend when you're rested. You're a better spouse when you're rested. (laughs) You are. (laughs) You're a better parent when you're rested. You're actually a better employee when you're rested. God gave the Sabbath for our flourishing. He knows us and he knows what we need. And so not harvesting on the Sabbath was a mark of trusting God. It, but it certainly wasn't there to stop you grabbing a snack while you were on a walk with your friends. That wasn't what the laws about resting on the Sabbath and not harvesting or working on the Sabbath were about. They are about rest, not about not having a snack. And they weren't there, as the illustration of David pointed out, to stop people from eating and sustaining life. The Sabbath was about giving life, not inhibiting it and restricting it. But these Pharisees had made resting into work. What God had given to bring freedom for people, they turned into chains and restriction for people. You know, over time they had developed 39 uh, kind of categories or classifications of work and each of those had endless subdivisions. I don't know if any of you are from a Jewish background or heritage or have family or friends who are practicing Jews, Uh, But many of those very, very tight restrictions are still practiced by people today. I I went a few years ago to visit a synagogue to meet with some of the leaders there and to to just kind of find out a bit more about what they practiced and what they believed. And the people there, the particular uh, leaders in charge there, the rabbi there, uh, they were not allowed within that synagogue to use electricity on a Sunday or to turn a light on because that was considered work. Lighting a candle was okay, but you're not allowed to turn the light switch on. (laughs) Crazy levels of what is and isn't allowed. Jesus wanted to get to the heart of the law. Not these added restrictions, but to say, this was given for your good. Not for your restriction, but Jesus didn't actually just stop there. We read from verse 5, and he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now this is a brilliant 
declaration. By saying he's Lord of the Sabbath, this is a claim to his divinity. This is Jesus saying in very thinly veiled terms, I'm God. (laughs) And as such, he's also saying, I gave the Sabbath. And because of that, Jesus' authority goes far beyond the cold, judgmental legalism of the Pharisees. And in another very, very real sense, Jesus is the Sabbath. Now that might sound a strange phrase, but I mean it like this. Jesus came and in and of himself for us supplies everything that the Sabbath was meant to give. Jesus came that we might experience true rest, that we might experience restoration, that we might experience communion with God. All that the Sabbath was intended to do, Jesus came to fulfill in the truest sense. And in case we still haven't got the point, Luke gives us another account of another Sabbath day building on the same point. We read from verse 6. On another Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now this is a fascinating setup, isn't it? These Pharisees were so enamoured with their laws and so attached to their old wine and so ready to rip apart the garment of grace that Jesus had come to give that they were actually more interested in catching Jesus out than on this man with the withered hands well-being. I mean, how messed up is that? They actually wanted Jesus to heal the man, not because they cared about the man at all, but because they thought it would give them an opportunity to catch Jesus breaking the rules and working on the Sabbath. Isn't that nuts? But Jesus, we read from verse 8, he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. He rose and stood before them and Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, presumably it was very quiet after he'd said that, no takers, is it right to do this? Is it right to preserve life or to take it? And everyone's like, and Jesus said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. They were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. These guys didn't get it at all. They were held captive by what they thought the law was about and how it should be applied and they were holding other people captive too with that. They were bound up in endless do's and don'ts which went far beyond God's commands to them. But remember, Jesus said in chapter 4 as we read, that he had come to free the captives. And so Jesus doesn't shy away from this moment. There are people held captive in that place. Jesus doesn't shy away. He wants them to see that they've missed the point. 
in seeking to justify themselves by ticking all the boxes and doing all the right things that they've utterly missed the point. The law was given for their good, but instead they were enslaved to it and they'd been using it to enslave others. The rules had become more important to them. This is an example of this man who they, they just hoped Jesus would heal him so that they could catch Jesus doing something he shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath was an example loud and clear that the rules had become even more important to them than people's lives or well-being. And Jesus' question, what's right, <laughs> assumes a few things. Firstly, it assumes this. It assumes that doing harm to anyone is not lawful. It assumes that destroying life is not lawful. And it assumes that it's always the right time to do good, to save life. In other words, to fail to do good and to preserve life, to stand idly by while life is lost, because that would mean working on the Sabbath, is actually a sin. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, he says to not heal this man, to, to be able to do it and not to do it would not be right. But legalism and a desire to justify ourselves, I don't know if you've ever observed this, but legalism and a desire to justify yourself by your works inevitably leads to judgmentalism and a desire to catch others out. Hmm? When you fixate on justifying yourself by doing all the right things, by going through all those motions, by getting it all just right, because then I'll be accepted by God. When you fixate on that, that actually leads to judgmentalism and a desire to catch others out. And that's what's going on for these Pharisees. They have not understood the heart of God's law at all. And I guess I want to ask, have you? They ignored the heart. They were pressing the externals. For these guys, it was all about ticking boxes, appearing to do the right thing so that God would approve. And this skin-deep religious observance was deadly. But in Jesus, we find life. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And in him, we find true rest. Rest that frees us from feeling the need to justify ourselves as if that were possible anyway. And instead, we are free to live with joyful, willing obedience to God's commands because we know that they were given for our good. Living in obedience to God's law isn't a cause for becoming puffed up with pride. Instead, it's an invitation to enjoy the goodness of God and to rejoice in the fact that he provides for all that he has made. It's an invitation to recognize that where we fail, Christ succeeded. Let's read on these last few verses from verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all that night he continued in prayer to God. And on to the next slide. Thank you, Joe. 
And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. These men as we're going to see over the coming weeks and as we continue in Luke's gospel, were not the cream of the crop. <laughs> we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. These guys are not the well-educated. They are not the clean-living, rule-keeping, religious elite. But those things don't qualify you in God's kingdom. Jesus does. And that's the point. When we read the list, you just get to the end of it and you read Judas who became a traitor. It's not a promising start, is it? (laughs) Yeah? And do you think Jesus didn't know their weaknesses when he called them? Of course he did. He knew that they were not qualified. But that's not the point. He knew their weaknesses. And he knows yours too. So I want to encourage you as we conclude. We're going to sing one final song, but we're going to finish here. He knew their weaknesses, and he knows yours too. So stop trying to patch up the garment of self-righteousness and admit your need. Put down the old wine of pride and humbly accept the gracious gift of Christ. Take a day off and rest in him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing together.